Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. So the island of Hawaii, also known as the Big Island, is made up really of volcanoes. It has five volcanoes. The most uh, uh, famous ones are Kilauea, Mauna Kea, and Mauna uh, Mauna Kea, and Mauna Loa. Mauna Loa is the largest volcano on earth, and then Mauna Kea, they say, is the most active on earth. And if you've ever visited the Big Island, um, you've seen the effects of, of the volcanoes. And, and I've been there once, and it's just, you could just see the volcanic uh, activity all throughout the island. Some of you maybe have even been there at one point and saw the lava that flows. You've seen the actual movement of lava flowing, uh, which is actually pretty remarkable. Now, what's most interesting to me when I think about lava and lava moving and flowing, you cannot stop lava, right? I mean, it is completely unstoppable. Of course, we humans, we try to stop anything, right? We try to conquer anything. And so we have tried to to uh, stop lava from flowing on numerous occasions. Going all the way back to 1669, On the island of Sicily, they tried to stop the lava from flowing, from stopping and destroying their cities, and they had no luck with that. On the island, or on Iceland, you know, the land of of fire and ice, as it's called, they have tried many times with no success in stopping the lava from flowing. The United States has even tried to bomb lava into submission. (laughs) We actually have. Back in 1935, the U.S. Army bombed a lava channel on Mauna Kea in the hopes of diverting it from from hitting the city of Hilo, and it had no effect. It didn't work. They tried again a couple years later in 1942 during another eruption of Mauna Loa, and they had no success. Well, the Air Force, thinking maybe the, the Army doesn't know what they're doing, the Air Force decided to get involved. And then in 1975 and in 1976, they tried to get involved and tried to stop the lava flow there on the big island. And of course, they had no luck either. While you might be able to outrun lava, you cannot do anything to stop it. Lava is unstoppable. We're diving into this new series where we're going to spend a couple months going through some of the highlights of the book of Acts. And I would encourage you to begin reading the book of Acts, maybe get through it two or three or four times throughout this series. And as you read it, you're going to discover, we're going to discover together that God is unstoppable. We're going to discover that the Spirit of God is unstoppable. We're going to see that the church is unstoppable. And so those of us here who are Jesus followers, here's what I'm hoping, at least for you, I'm hoping, really for all of us, I want you to know that you are part, I want you to see it and know that you're part of an unstoppable movement of God. There's times when you feel unimportant. There's times that you feel insignificant. There may even be times where you think, man, I've kind of like wasted some of my life or I've wasted a large part of my life, but I want you to know, I'm telling you, you, if you're a Jesus follower, are part of the unstoppable movement and unstoppable mission of God. You are filled with an unstoppable spirit, which is to say this, if you're in Christ, Man, your life is full of significance beyond what you can possibly imagine. That your life matters. That you're part of the greatest movement in the history of the world. 
And so this book of Acts that we're going to be stepping into is the story of God's Spirit working through God's people to accomplish God's mission. And we're going to see this together. So let me set the stage for you as we dive into this book. I'd encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 1 right now if you haven't already done so. You can go on your physical Bible or the, your phone to the Version Bible app. Let me set the stage. When Jesus was crucified, his disciples lost all hope. The movement was over. This person who they thought was their savior, he died. He clearly wasn't who they thought he was. This movement that they were a part of, this kingdom that he came to establish, clearly is not being set up. When Jesus died, the hopes and the dreams of his followers also died. But we know what happened. We celebrated it last weekend, right? An amazing weekend here at LifePoint. Three days later, Jesus, as he said he would do, he rose from the grave. And then, over the course of 40 days, Jesus appeared to his followers before he ascended to heaven. Now, before Jesus had actually died, he would speak often to his followers about the Holy Spirit that he would be sending once he went up to heaven. And let me just read a couple of these. This is what Jesus was saying to his disciples in advance about the Holy Spirit. Let's listen to this. John chapter 14, it says this. It says, the advocate, this is Jesus talking, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. John 15, Jesus goes on and says, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And then in John 16, Jesus said, When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. So let's think about this. Jesus calls this the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. He calls him the Advocate. And, and, God's, and Jesus says, when God sends the Holy Spirit, that he is going to teach you. He's going to remind you of everything I said, that the Holy Spirit is going to talk about and testify about Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would guide them in all truth. And so the book of Acts kicks off, and the book of Acts is written by the same author of the, book of the Gospel of Luke. Who wrote the Gospel of Luke? Anybody want to take a guess? Right, right, Luke, right? Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And it kicks off, the book of Acts kicks off with the resurrected Jesus reminding his followers of this coming of the Holy Spirit. Let's pick it up. Set the stage for this series, Acts chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, what's the former book? It's the Gospel of Luke. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, in other words, after his death and burial, after his crucifixion, after his suffering, after he rose from the dead, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Everybody say convincing. Convincing proofs he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. Everybody say gift. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, which I read some of those verses. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
So Jesus tells his followers here, I want you to wait in Jerusalem for what? For the gift the whole, of, the, of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. It's a gift from God. The Holy Spirit, by, by the way, the book of Acts is sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles, and sometimes it's called the Acts of the Spirit. Why? Because we discovered through the book of Acts, we discovered that the Spirit of God is unstoppable. The Spirit of God works through his apostles to do the mighty works of God. With the Spirit of God in them, they do mighty works. And you need to understand, if you have the Spirit of God in you, if you're a Jesus follower, then you too can do the mighty works of God. You've been equipped with the Spirit in your life. But I want you to notice here that Luke mentions in verse 3 how Jesus gave his followers convincing proofs that he was alive. Jesus, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us, uh, because Jesus showed up multiple times, the Apostle Paul tells us one of those times, Jesus showed up in front of 500 people that all saw him alive. They had infallible proof he was alive. They could see him. They could hear him. There were times that they even got to touch him. And here in this passage in Luke, or Acts chapter 1, it tells us that they even ate with the resurrected Jesus. So they're now convinced Jesus, yes, he was indeed the Son of God, the promised Savior. And you and I need to understand that you and I also, we serve the Son of God, a risen Savior. We're the one religion, the one faith in the world. We don't, serve, we don't follow some ideology or some great teaching that, yeah, that people just love. We don't follow somebody who's in a grave. We serve and follow a risen Savior, a resurrected Savior, the one true God. Amen. And so after providing this proof that he was alive, that he had been resurrected, Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. And so he reminds them once again of the Holy Spirit and about their mission and about their purpose. Let's pick it up. Let's continue. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says this. He's telling them, okay, I've told you about the Holy Spirit. Now he says this. You will receive power. Everybody say power. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says this. He says, I want you to go to the entire world. I'm putting you on mission. And you're going to receive power to accomplish the mission. The Holy Spirit will be with you. This, maybe some of you, if you've read Matthew chapter 28, this reminds you of that passage where Jesus told us, go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all that Jesus had taught them, and lo, I'll be with you always. And so you have that great commission here again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And I got to imagine, these followers of Jesus, their excitement is now at an all-time high. They're ready to go. They're ready to conquer the world. Their Savior is alive. He's risen, and he tells them, you're going to even have power. But Jesus tells them something. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I want you to wait. I want you to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't run in front of God. Why does he tell them to wait for the Holy Spirit? Why does he tell them to wait before they start to execute the mission that they're so excited to get going with? Well, it's because they needed, for lack of better terms, the necessary equipment, so to speak, to do their job. For example, let's just kind of imagine it this way. We have some of our young people here. Imagine you said, hey, I want to be a fighter pilot. 
So if you want to be a fighter pilot, you say, okay, you know what, I'm going to join the Air Force Academy. So you join the Air Force Academy, and then after that, you go through that, you do the training, you learn how to fly, you graduate, and there at graduation, they, they, they commission you and say, okay, you're now officially a fighter pilot for the United States Air Force, and as part of that, you now need to go buy your own plane. Once you have it, come on back, and you're going to fly for us. And you're thinking, first of all, I can't afford a $90 million F-35. But secondly, you're thinking, hey, I assumed if I joined the team that they were going to provide me the right equipment to do the job. Since you trained me, U.S. Air Force, since you prepared me, since you commissioned me as a pilot, of course you're going to give me the right equipment to do the job that you're asking me to do for my country. It's that same idea here. Jesus has commissioned you and I to go into all the world. But he told them originally, he said, I, I've commissioned you, I've called you, but wait until you're filled with spirit or with power from on high. Wait until you have the necessary equipment, so to speak, to do the job. Wait in Jerusalem. Wait. Wait until you're equipped. And then you'll go. You'll be my witnesses then you will start your mission. By the way, in this passage, it tells us where Jesus would commission them to, where they would go be his witnesses, where they would carry out the mission. He told them it would be to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when you think about that, that's really how the book of Acts is laid out. In chapters 1 through 7, that's where the gospel goes out in Jerusalem. In chapters 8 and 9, that's where the gospel witness goes out to Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 10 through the remainder of the book of Acts, that's when the, the message then extends, you know, to the ends of the earth, so to speak. It starts in some backwater province, at least that's how people viewed Israel, in some backwater province of the empire. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, where are they? They are in the capital of the empire. They're in Rome. It extends to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, you're going to be the ones who are going to do that. You're going to share the gospel. I'm equipping you with an unstoppable spirit. You have the right equipment. You will deliver also an unstoppable message. So he goes on. Acts chapter 1, verse 9, he says, after he said this, in other words, telling them to wait in Jerusalem to receive power from on high, after he said this, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. Then what are most likely two heavenly messengers? They say this in verse 11, the same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I hope you and I never lose sight of the fact that Jesus is coming back. Jesus will return. And in fact, Scripture talks about this, and it tells us this, and I love this verse, Titus chapter 2. It says, we wait, the Jesus followers, we wait for the blessed hope. Some translations say our joyful assurance. We wait for our blessed hope. And what is it? It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope there's inside of you a sense that you recognize, Jesus, I know you're coming back. I know you're returning to, to come, and we'll have a chance to be with you one day. And so I hope that's part of your faith. It's your blessed hope waiting for the appearing of our Savior to return. And so they're waiting. They're waiting in Jerusalem. Now it's time. 
It's time for this power that Jesus has talked about to arrive. It's time for the, for the Spirit of God to be unleashed, for them to get the right equipment, so to speak, to carry out their mission. So let's check it out. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. Everybody say house. Filled the house where they were sitting. Now you read that and you start to get images of what's happening. You're thinking, hey, they're in the upper room or something where, you know, they had the last supper and they're in this house. But you need to understand the word house here in Acts chapter 2 verse 2 is the Greek word oikon or oikos. And the word can mean house or it can mean temple. And so you got to kind of look at the context there. The Hebrew word bayit means house or temple also. The temple, anybody know what it was called? It was called the house of God. Even today, the temple mount, which is where the Dome of the Rock is, which is where the temple used to be, the Dome of the Rock, it's called the Har HaHabit, the Har HaHabit, which means the mountain of the house. So the house is understood as the reference to the temple. Also, that's what Jesus talked about. And he referenced the temple as the house of God and the house of God or a house of prayer. And we see that in Matthew chapter 12 in a couple different places. And those places in Matthew 12 and in Matthew 21, that is the same Greek word oikos or oikon as we see here in Acts chapter 2 verse 2 when Jesus had called that the house of God, the house of prayer. So the disciples, they're gathered in one place at the temple. Nowhere do we see that they're gathered at the upper room, so to speak, that, that, and, and hiding, so to speak. That's the wrong image. A lot of times we kind of see these depictions of this, if you've ever watched movies or, or videos, and you see like they're, they're, they're tucked away in this house, and they've been hiding, and then the Spirit comes. That's not what we see here in Scripture. They're in the temple, they're gathered together in the temple. And notice where they're there because what, of, what does verse 1 say? They're there because of Pentecost. That's when they're supposed to be there. They're supposed to gather in the temple. Now, what is Pentecost? Pentecost is one of the festivals that God has required the Jews to ascend up to Jerusalem each year. Now, I'm going to ask that you hang with me for here just a moment because I want you to see the significance of what's going to happen next to the disciples by taking you back. Give you some context so that when we read in a moment Acts chapter 2, it'll mean a little bit more and you'll understand it a little more. So what I want to do is I want to take you all the way back to the, the Israelites being slaves in Egypt. 450 years, they're slaves in Egypt. God uh, finally says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release my people, I'm going to let them go. And, and so he works with Moses and they kind of go through this journey with Pharaoh. And God is just about to rescue them. God then has them one evening celebrate what would become the first Passover. And what was, the, that, what was that very first Passover? God had said, I'm going to send the death angel through. And, and, and any home that does not have the blood of a lamb uh, spread over the doorpost of the house, any home that does not have that, the death angel will come in and take the firstborn. But any uh, family that has the blood of a lamb spread over the doorpost, God, this angel would pass over that house. 
And so the Israelites spread the blood of a lamb over their doorpost. The angel comes, passes over their house. The Egyptians don't know about this. And so the angel goes in and takes the firstborn from those Egyptian families, Pharaoh's child being one of them. And that was what finally did it for Pharaoh. All the plagues didn't do it, but this was finally the one that God used. And so Pharaoh finally said, all right, you can all leave. Get out of here. And they left in the middle of the night, and they left in a, in a hurry sort of way. So that was the first Passover. Fifty days later, after that first Passover, the, the Israelites had left Egypt, and they were traveling. Fifty days later, they end up at Mount Sinai. Some of you maybe heard of Mount Sinai before. This is where Moses goes up the mountain. He meets with God, and God gives them the what? The right? The Ten Commandments, right? Also the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. And it's there that Mount Sinai, there's some significance of what's happening, tying into our story today. God's presence on Mount Sinai for them was signified by wind and by fire when God established his covenant with his people for the first time there at Mount Sinai. It was signified by wind and by fire. Imagine, You're these newly freed slaves. Just weeks prior, you would watch God's divine spirit. The the word uh, spirit means wind and winds means spirit. You would watch God's spirit, the wind of God, separate the waters of the Red Sea so that the Israelites could pass through the Red Sea and and then the Egyptians got destroyed in the Red Sea. So they had watched the spirit of God move and separate the Red Sea. And now they're gazing up to Mount Sinai. Moses is up there with God. They see the smoke. They see the lightning. They hear the wind and the fire that's taking place. And they are thinking and believing and seeing that God's spirit is moving and blowing again, just like they had saw a couple weeks ago when they passed through the Red Sea. With that imagery in mind, let's read Acts chapter 2, verse 2. It says, suddenly... A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house or filled the whole temple where they were sitting. Let's think God's presence here. In the, it was in the wind at Mount Sinai. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, again, think Mount Sinai, that separated and came to rest on each of the disciples. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in, in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So let's picture this. It's Pentecost. And Pentecost is a day where the Jewish followers of Jesus had gathered at the temple, along with Jews from all over the world, because Pentecost is when God asked the Jewish people to come to Jerusalem. And so it's the followers of Jesus, along with other followers, thousands and thousands of people assembled here at the temple of God, Suddenly, there's a violent wind coming from heaven. Everybody hears it. And then there's these tongues of fire that comes and rest on the disciples. So you have this audible phenomenon. Everybody hears it. It's something like the blowing of a mighty wind. Why a mighty wind? I just told you. Think Mount Sinai. But also, in Job, we see that God comes to, to, comes to Job in a mighty whirlwind. I imagine when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, now it doesn't say this in Scripture, this is just my imagination here, but I imagine when he was talking to Nicodemus that the wind was blowing. 
Because you know, what we do know in Scripture is that and he's talking to Nicodemus and he tells him about the Spirit of God. And Jesus told Nicodemus, the Spirit blows where he wills, where he decides. It's like Jesus is linking this movement of the Spirit of God with the wind. Also, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word wind and spirit are the same words. So Hebrew word for wind and spirit, same word. Hebrew, uh, Greek word for wind and spirit, it's the same word. And so they hear this audible phenomenon, a sound of the rushing mighty wind or, or the spirit of God. It fills the whole temple, which of course gets everybody's attention. But then the people's attention these thousands who have gathered, their attention, they're looking up, they're hearing this mighty sound of this mighty wind and thinking back to the Old Testament, they're thinking, Spirit of God, something's going on here. And then they go from an audible phenomenon to a physical phenomenon. And they see what looks like tongues of fire that come. And, and so now you have the whole temple area, the temple mount, but now it gets lasered in and zeroed in into one spot with one group of people. And it's the Jesus followers who are in one area in the temple. And this tongues of fire come and rest on them. Why fire? Because fire was often used as a symbol of the presence of God. Let's go back to Mount Sinai. Remember Moses, Exodus chapter 3. He's up on Mount Sinai. He sees a burning what? A burning bush, right? What was that? It was this burning bush that was not consumed. And out of that bush, Moses hears a voice which says, hey, take off your sandals. You're standing here on holy ground. You're here in the presence of God. There's the fire and he's in the presence of God. What directed the children of Israel for 40 years, every single night as they made their way around the desert? What was it? It was a pillar of fire. So wind and fire, it's a symbol of the presence of God. It's a symbol of the Spirit of God. And verse 4, Acts chapter 2 says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit of, of God. And so this crowd that's from all over the world, notice what it says in Acts chapter 2 verse 11. It says, man, we all hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues or our own language. By the miracle of God, these Jewish pilgrims from all over the world, they understand or understood exactly what these followers of Jesus were saying. They are hearing praises go up to God. They're hearing the declaration of the wonders of God. And so verse 12 says this, amazed and perplexed. Of course, that makes sense. They're, they're amazed. The mighty wind, the tongues of fire, thinking about the Old Testament, representing the Spirit of God. They're amazed and perplexed, and they ask one another, so what does this mean? The Spirit of God, and we kind of understand that language, and the fire, and we understand the presence of God. And So what does this mean? How do we understand what they're saying? How do we hear them in our own language? How do we hear them praising God in our own language? What's happening? It's a great question. Acts chapter 2, verse 13. Some, everybody say some. Some, some, however, made fun of them. Some translations say some mocked them. Some translations say some ridiculed them. And they said, wow, they just had too much wine. They're just a bunch of drunks. You see, when it comes to faith in Jesus, there will always be mockers. Have you figured that out? 
There are always going to be those who make fun of us, who ridicule us, who mock us. Some of you were mockers before you came to Christ. And praise God, you came to Christ. Some of the crowd mocks or makes fun of these Jesus followers. The best that they can come up with is what we call in English, go back to your English days, what's called an ad hominem attack. Hopefully you young people have actually heard that word. And so it's an ad hominem attack. What is that? What is an ad hominem attack? It's when a person can't emotionally deal with a topic. It's when a person emotionally can't have an intellectual conversation or a reasonable conversation. And so what do they do? They resort to attacking somebody personally. They resort to going after the person. Oh, these people, they're just a bunch of idiots. They're just a bunch of drunks. They're losers. Don't ignore them. This is crazy. This is nuts. Instead of talking and discussing and having a reasonable exchange of ideas, they resort to personal attacks. And you hear that and you read this and you go, man, that just kind of sounds a lot like, uh, you know, SOP for today, right? Standard operating procedure for today. We live in this culture where ad hominem attacks just seems like it's happening more and more and more, whether it's, you know, in, in politics or whether it's in government policies or, or health policies or faith topics or, or, or more morality topics. Have you discovered it's very difficult to just have a reasonable conversation with people these days? It's hard. It's difficult. Many groups, many people, you know, if they don't have, you know, science, if they don't have reason or morality or truth on their side, sometimes the only thing they have are ad hominem attacks where they will go and attack you personally. And they ridicule people of faith. They mock you. They make fun of you. But listen, that shouldn't be a surprise to you. It really shouldn't. It shouldn't be like, oh, man, well, look what's happening, and this is, I, I can't believe this is happening. It shouldn't be a surprise to you. Why? Because Jesus said it shouldn't surprise you. Jesus made it clear in John chapter 15, verse 18, he said, he said, remember, when they hate you, when they attack you, when they make fun of you, remember they hated me first. Remember they mocked me first. So it shouldn't be a surprise. It's go- In other words, Jesus is saying, it's going to happen. 1 Peter chapter 4 and 1 John chapter 3, it tells us when you are mocked, when you're ridiculed, when you're attacked, it will happen. Don't be surprised by it. This is a result of those of us in faith who follow Jesus. There will be some who mock us, who ridicule us, who make fun of us. But Peter who has now received the Holy Spirit, who has now received power from on high. Verse 14, Peter stood up with the 11. He raised his voice. He addressed the crowd. And he said, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Peter is about to unleash. He's about to go off. Did you hear who I mentioned is going to unleash who? Who's going to unleash? Peter, wait, wait, Peter, isn't that the dude, foot and mouth Peter? Isn't that the dude who just couldn't, who like says the wrong things constantly? Isn't that the dude who just denied Jesus three times? Jesus even told him in advance it would happen, so at least he could have been prepared for it. Isn't this the guy who, who, who was afraid to admit that he was a Jesus follower? That Peter? Yeah, that Peter. The very same Peter 
that is now going to start fulfilling what Jesus said. See, what had Jesus said to Peter? Jesus, before he died, he said to Peter, hey, Peter, I want you to know Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And Jesus said, Peter, I prayed for you. And when you fall, (laughs) Jesus tell me, you're going to fall. When you fall, I'm going to pick you up. You'll be restored. And when you're restored, I want you to go and strengthen others. Jesus prophesied that Peter would fail and bail. He'd fail and he'd bail on Jesus, but Jesus also said he would be restored. And Jesus did restore him. You might know the story, Acts chapter 21. It's this tender story after Jesus rises from the dead and he goes to Peter specifically. And Peter, you know, and maybe all his shame and all his pain and wondered, man, what happened to me? I didn't have what it takes to stand up to the Lord or stand up to these people and I was embarrassed and I was ashamed. Jesus goes to Peter and he looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter's like, yeah, I do. Jesus asked him, do you love me? Do you really love me? Yes, I do. Do you love me? And Peter said, yes. And Jesus says, well, then I want you to feed my sheep. I'm commissioning you. I'm calling you to step in. You have been restored. You're still in the game. Your failures don't define you. I define you. And I say you're loved. And I say you're still in the game. So go and speak and strengthen others. And so now you have this Peter who has seen the resurrected Jesus, who's been restored, who's been commissioned. And after receiving now the spirit of power, this once defeated ex-fisherman stands up and boldly speaks about Jesus in front of thousands in the temple. How did he do it? How did the once cowardly denier be so bold? Simple, the spirit of God the Holy Spirit. He's full of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not by his own strength. His own strength let him down. But it's by the Spirit of God. I want you to understand and catch this. The Spirit of God is unstoppable. The Spirit of God is unstoppable. Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit would come, that the Holy Spirit would fill them and empower them to accomplish God's mission through their lives. And isn't it just like God that the Holy Spirit decides to come at the perfect time when these Jewish, these followers of Jesus are gathered in the temple along with thousands of others from around the world on Pentecost? What a time to do that. The same time when God showed up at Mount Sinai after the Passover. And Peter gets ready to deliver an unstoppable message. We're going to talk about that next week. You do not want to miss and how this is going to have an impact on your life. It is the best place for Jesus, the message of Jesus to be heard in the temple, the spirit, in the, in the house of the Lord, and the unleashing of God's spirit on his followers sets in motion the greatest movement in the history of the world. Eventually, this movement of God, this unstoppable movement of God, within just a couple hundred years, Christianity is going to supplant pagan worship as the, as the, as the religion or the faith of the empire. That's just mind-boggling to think about. How does that happen? Well, it all started this day we just talked about on Pentecost. The disciples were out in the open meeting 
And then they're empowered by the Spirit, and they boldly begin to declare the works of God without shame, without fear. How? What was the difference? It was the Spirit of God. Now, before we walk out of here, you need to understand you have the same Spirit. Those of you who have said yes to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and God invites all of us to say yes to him as our Lord and Savior. God promised he would give us the Holy Spirit. Listen to what 2 Timothy chapter 1 says about this Spirit of God that we just kind of touched on and we're going to be talking about throughout this series. It says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power. Everybody say power. power. We've been given a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. God wants to use you. He's given you your, you know, F-35, so to speak. He's given you the right equipment to accomplish his mission that he's given to every single one of us. He's given us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives us power. It gives us the power to love people, to love those who are lovable and to love those who are unlovable. He gives us the spirit of power that enables us to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives. Not in our own, own righteousness, not in our own efforts, but only because we have the spirit of power residing in us. The spirit of God is unstoppable. The message of God is unstoppable. You are part of an unstoppable movement of God. And my hope and my prayer is as we dive into this series more and more each week, as you read the book of Acts, that you will allow the Spirit of God to move in your life, to impact this world for Jesus. That's my hope and prayer for each one of you. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.